Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we'll be talking about Audrey Lord, self-described black lesbian mother and warrior poet. Before we begin, we have a couple of promotions that we think our listeners might enjoy. The first is Hank Green's latest novel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavour. Hank Green's first book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, was released in 2018. The story of a young woman thrown into fame as the world suddenly has to deal with massive changes in the form of contagious dreams and mysterious 10-foot-tall robots that have appeared in every major city. The Associated Press said it was a thrilling journey that takes a hard look at the power of fame and our willingness to separate a person from the brand. Book reported said it was perhaps as honest a look as we will ever get into the phenomenon of cyber fame. And the San Francisco Chronicle said, Sparkling with mystery, humour and the uncanny, this is a fun read, but beneath its effervescent tone, more complex themes are at play. Well, now that novel is out in paperback or at your library and also for cheap in audio form. And the sequel and conclusion of the story, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavour, is out to sparkling reviews. Hank wanted his publisher to sponsor a ton of small podcasts, but they said that was too weird. So instead, Hank took 5% of his advance from the book and did it himself. Library Journal's starred review said, Throughout this adventurous, witty, and compelling novel, Green delivers sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. The book came out on July 7th in physical, audio, and ebook form wherever books are sold, or you can just go to hankgreen.com and that will get you where you need to go. And now I'll hand over to Jason for our second promotion of the episode. Inappropriate Questions from CBC Podcasts is a show about questions, ones that might be uncomfortable. From how old are you to did you lose weight and can I speak to your manager, hosts Eleanor Hudgens-Lyle, a queer millennial, and Harvenda Wadwa, a dad, talk to people who have been asked these questions to find out where they come from and learn more respectful ways to get curious. You can subscribe to Inappropriate Questions on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on with the episode. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of period-typical racism and the use of outdated language referring to black people in quotes. It'll also include discussions of period-typical homophobia. There'll also be mentions of murder and execution, discussions of mental illness, depression, and suicide, mentions of drug use, mentions of abortion, mentions of terminal cancer and a mastectomy in response to breast cancer, and discussions of the US invasion of Grenada. If any of that is something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. Before we start the episode proper, we should acknowledge the fact that it's nice to have the traditional gang together. Yeah, it's nice to be in the room. This is the first time we've let you in the podcast this season. <laughs> Welcome yes. back. You know, as we record this, which things may have changed drastically by the time the episode even comes out. It is okay for the three of us to be in a room. Until the end of today. We've just heard today that Alice's suburb is going to go into lockdown again, so we won't be recording with the three of us for a while again. So who knows what's going to happen. Okay, so there were three main books that I used when researching Audrey's life, which I supplemented with other bits and pieces, but essentially the three books were Audrey Lord's autobiography called Zummy, A New Spelling of My Name. It was published in 1982. She called it a biomythography, acknowledging that it wasn't like strictly factual, largely by reading it alongside a more traditional biography. You can tell which parts are fictionalized and which parts stay closer to the like chronology of Audrey's life. I also read Warrior Poet, a biography by Alexis DeVoe, 
Alexis DeVoe is another black lesbian academic writer who was born in the 1940s, I think, who also grew up in Harlem where Audrey grew up. And in addition to that, Audrey's estate gave DeVoe access to some like 30 boxes of Audrey's papers. And she was able to interview like friends, family members, partners. The third book that I used is called Conversations with Audrey Lord, And it's a collection of interviews with Audrey by various people who knew her published in the 1980s. I feel like in this podcast we have like, there's no information about this person. There's three online articles and one book, which is bad. And then we have, there are 50 books and they wrote 25 of them. And the other 25 are also like super in depth and have their own primary research. And like, so rarely do we find the middle ground where it's like, there are three like really good books that present different viewpoints that I can bring together. Yeah. And I feel like you've fallen on the like too much in There was site. so much information. <laughs> Often so with writers, much. I find, yeah. yeah, it's hard. And all her social circles are like academic and writerly circles. Oh, yeah. And so everyone around her is also writing and talking about their lives. So you can pick up any biography of any like friend of hers and be like, and what did Audrey do in this one? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she was also just very conscious of herself as a historical figure. And she was aware towards the end of her life, like she had terminal cancer. And so she kind of made preparations for a biography. Which hypothetically might make it a bit easier. I mean, I think the hardest thing, honestly, was just trying to get this down to, like, a podcast episode and not a lecture series. Yeah. The episode leans more towards Audrey's personal life than Audrey as an activist. And towards her career, I guess. I do talk more about her as a writer and an academic. But it's very much impossible to separate that from her politics. Audrey was born... In New York City on February the 18th, 1934, her parents were Byron Lord and Linda Belmar Lord. Both Byron Lord, like, what a name. That's yeah, true. <laughs> I love that a Lord thing for Lord Byron. <laughs> Come on, Lord. <laughs> no, well, that was her dad's name, Byron Lord. Both her parents were immigrants from the Caribbean. Her mother huh. had been born in Granada and her father was from Barbados. They had lived together in Granada before they moved to New York. She was initially named Audrey with a Y. As quite a young child learning to write, she was like, it appealed to me that both my names ended with an E, so I dropped the Y. And there was no like further mention of a time in her life where she like consciously changed it. So I think she just started writing as Audrey Lord with no Y as like her pen name. Yeah. And that was her name. Audrey was... The third child in a family of three, she had two older sisters, Helen and Phyllis, who were quite close in age and about four years older. And she always felt quite separate from them, mm. like perceiving them to have a kind of connection that she didn't have. I bet they made her be R2-D2 when they played Star Wars. You used to make her be R2-D2 when we played Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. You got to be Princess Leia. Our brother got to be Luke. Yeah. Luke Leonardo. The she slept in her parents' bedroom and her two sisters shared the other bedroom. In the, like, they lived in a two-bedroom house. And she tells this anecdote where, like, they were on a beach holiday, the family was. And so the three sisters were sharing a room for once. And she was like, I was so excited that I would get to hear, like, the things that my sisters did when I wasn't, like, in their room when I wasn't oh, yeah. there. And 
turns out that what her sisters did was like tell stories to each other about their favorite comic book characters. Oh, that's um, good. There was an interview with like one of her sisters years later where she was like, I'd forgotten all about that until Audrey brought up how excited she was <laughs> that one night to hear these stories. <laughs> that's very cute. I'm also glad because when you started telling this story, it sounded like it was going down a negative path and like either her sister's just going to be like, good night, Audrey, and go to sleep or they were going to be like mean to her or something. But no, it was great. It was wholesome. Yeah. Her sisters were like, she felt mean to her, but not in a sort of out of the ordinary way. So yeah, she always felt quite, especially as a child, distant from her sisters, saying that she often felt like an only child, being quite different in personality from her sisters and from like other girls she knew in primary school, elementary school, that's how it's called (laughs) in America. As a child, she was so short-sighted that she was considered legally blind. However, she learnt to write and to read through like large print books, picture books, that kind of thing. Her very first few weeks of school, she did at a school for visually impaired children, but she quickly found that like she was way beyond academically what was expected of them. She complained to her mother. Her mother came into the school and was like, you need to do better for Audrey. And if you can't, I'm taking her to the Mainstream mainstream school. school. And so she went from there to the Catholic elementary school that her sisters went to. Just from that small story where it's like she knew she was academically ahead of what was expected of her and she complained to her mother and her mother took action. Like she sounded like a very assertive kid. Yeah. Like she tells this story where the nuns were teaching them letters and tried to get her to write the letter A and she naturally wrote her entire name because that started with A. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, you're wrong, Audrey. That wasn't the instruction. And she complained to her mother and her mother came in and was like, do better for Audrey. A good mum. While the children were young, Audrey's father, Byron, started going to night classes after work to become qualified as a real estate manager. Do you know what he did before then? Or? Before that, at home in Granada, he had run a general store. He was known as quite an astute businessman. But coming to New York, it was difficult for him to find that kind of work as a like new black immigrant. And so he did a lot of work like unpacking like warehouses nights, oh, yeah. like working nights in hotels but then so he started going to classes to become qualified as a real estate manager and once he finished that study he started a real estate business working as a letting agent so between his business and his obligations as a man around the time of the Second World War, so he had, like, training obligations as part of a unit of black men. Audrey saw little of her father at this age, who would come home, like, between work and training to grab a few hours sleep, maybe, and then go back out. Linda was a much more present parent to Audrey, who remembers her as a stern disciplinarian. She often used, like, anger to express affection in a motherly way. She understood it as her role to like teach her children to stay on the right path in order to get them through the hardships of being black and an immigrant in America at this time. So she was quite strict with them. Audrey admired her mother deeply as a young child, but as a teenager felt increasingly stifled by her mother's restrictions. She was rarely allowed to have friends over and her mother often disapproved of the friends that Audrey made who were more radical than her mother's conservative Catholic upbringing allowed for. Even at this age, Audrey was quite stubborn and quite inclined to like challenge the status quo that she encountered. Upon coming to the school that her sisters attended, she quickly made a name for herself questioning Catholic doctrine (laughs) (laughs) and for being the polar opposite of her two sisters who studied well and were well behaved and... (laughs) 
I like how at the other school, the nuns were like, right, the letter A, and she wrote too much, and so she left. And now she's at this new school, and she's like, oh, there are still nuns to question. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> In her family, Audrey recalls that her parents rarely talked about race much. It did, like, it did influence their day-to-day life, but it was something which was never discussed. She remembers thinking that her mother would ignore something and believe that by ignoring it, it would cease to exist. But she also remembers age 13 in order to celebrate one of her sister's graduations. The family took a trip to Washington, D.C. on, like, a hot afternoon. They stopped to enter an ice cream parlor and were told that they couldn't be served there as black people. The woman at the counter said they were welcome to have takeaway, but they couldn't sit there and be served. This was one of the first sort of overt experiences of racism that Audrey recounts. It was never discussed in her family after that, but being very angry, she wanted to write a letter to the president about it. (laughs) Um, Sounds like a great kid. Yeah. And so she asked her father and he said, sure, if that's important to you, I'll lend you my typewriter and we can type it up. A good dad. And so she wrote this letter to the president about how hurt she was that in what was supposed to be democratic America, she could not have ice cream. After finishing eighth grade, Audrey persuaded her parents to let her sit the entrance exam for Hunter College High School. Hunter College High School was a publicly funded selective school for academically gifted students. At the time, it was an all-girls school and Audrey passed the entrance examination and started at Hunter College High. She flourished in this environment. It was a very small school and a very academically focused school. While she was one of only, I think, three black students, many of the other students came from working class backgrounds or belonged to other ethnic minorities. And so while she felt that she was isolated in her blackness, she didn't feel completely isolated. Hmm. She felt that she had some like parallel experiences with her peers. She also found that they just had a lot in common in other areas. She found a group of friends who would later label themselves the branded. (laughs) Wow. And teenagers being very melodramatic. Who shared her love for poetry. She describes holding seances with them at lunchtime in order to try and communicate with Byron and Keats. I love her. Holding seances at lunchtime is basically like typical playground behavior, but like to Byron and Keats. Yeah. 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 Do you know why they called themselves the branded? Like, does that reference anything in particular? I don't know. Alexis DeVoe said that it was a name that they seemed to have come upon later. Oh, yeah. So they weren't called that when they were at school. Yeah, like maybe after high school, maybe in late high school. Um, I'm not sure. Audrey particularly credits her time at Hunter for taking her poetry from something that she did privately to something that she openly shared and felt celebrated for. So she would often read her poetry to her friends or share it with her friends. Sounds like she had like a pretty positive childhood experience overall. She felt very isolated when she was young, I think, Uh but her... Like, her high school experience was formative for her, and she honestly loved the school, I think. That's very good. So it's a weird one to have that good childhood on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of sitting there, like, waiting for something, and it's like, oh, no, she just had, like, pretty good and supportive parents, and, um, like, uh, went to a good school, and... Her parents are complicated, which is to say, like, they love her and they support her, but they often do it, especially her mother, in ways that don't sit well with her. Oh, yeah. Like, she often feels like her mother's restricting her. As she got older, she fought with her mother a lot. In her 20s, they were estranged for a little while. They do rekindle their relationship, and in all her writing, she admires her mother greatly. So, like, the relationship 
with her parents and her childhood is kind of a mixed bag, but she takes a lot of, I think, positives out of it. She also had friends outside of the branded. Why would you need other friends when the branded sounds so cool? <laughs> I was about to be like, we should come up with a name for our group of friends. And I was like, oh, it's, it's queer as fact. <laughs> the most notable of her friends outside of the branded was Genevieve Johnson. So the pair met at school when Jenny joined Hunter High in the middle of freshman year. But Jenny, who was trained in classical ballet, quit during their junior year in order to spend more time dancing. Their friendship continued anyway. They would forge notes pretending to be each other's mothers <laughs> in order to wag school and spend days together at Jenny's house while her mother was at work. Or sometimes they would roam the streets in costumes that they put together at Jenny's house. The things they pretended to be were wild. They, they ranged from like, we pretended to be Mexican and ate tacos to oh. we pretended to be unionists and wore red bandanas and sung the international loudly on the bus. <laughs> It was so wild. I love it. But often they would just walk together hand in hand through the park, share ice cream together, or just cuddle together on the sofa at Jenny's house and talk. In Zami, Audrey called Jenny the first person I was ever conscious of loving. So are they like girlfriends? Or are they just like friends who are like treading the line that teen queer they're girls just, just kind of tread? Or Yeah, like... they're just like treading that line. They don't, uh-huh. they don't sort of talk about... Being girlfriends. Being girlfriends or being gay or anything Uh like that. They just cuddle a lot and hold hands a lot and spend all their time together. Jenny lived with her single mother, Louise, who had raised her from childhood with the help of Jenny's grandmother after the father had left them. When she was around 15, Jenny rediscovered her father and felt charmed by him and became increasingly at odds with her mother, who felt that her daughter's relationship with the man that had abandoned them was an expression of ingratitude for the years that she had spent raising Jenny. Increasingly at this time, Jenny began to talk to Audrey about her plans for suicide. Audrey talks about it like Jenny was very matter of fact about it. She'd sort of Mm. said to her at the end of the summer when I kill myself. And then they just like went on with their usual activities, like buying tacos together, buying Mm. ice cream together, going out together. And yeah, Audrey very much felt she like she knew this was coming and didn't know what to do about it. And in that year, Jenny's grandmother found her in the bathtub having cut her wrists. She survived and unsure of what else could save her daughter, Jenny's mother allowed her to move in with her father and her father's new partner, Ella. In the new household, Jenny's mental health didn't improve. And some months later, a second attempt at suicide killed her. Oh, God. Oh, 15. Audrey was left to grieve Jenny very privately. As I said, she was outside of the, like, main social circle that Audrey had. Audrey's parents didn't hadn't approved of Jenny, who they thought was sort of loud and wild. And nobody at all understood the depth of feeling that Audrey had for Jenny. In her autobiography, Audrey writes this list of things I never did with Genevieve. Let our bodies touch and tell the passions that we felt. Go to a village gay bar, or any bar, anywhere. Smoke reefer. Derail the freight that took circus animals to Florida. (laughs) Take a course in international obscenities. Learn Swahili. See Martha Graham's dance troupe. Visit Pearl Primus. Pearl Primus was an African-American dancer Mm. who had attended Hunter High, like, Mm. well before then. Ask her to take us away with her to Africa next time. Write the book. Make love. Oh, that's very beautiful and very sad. I don't know if she intended it to be, but, like, it's a list, but it's almost like a poem. I think she did. I think she very much did. Audrey's autobiography, like, honestly, is recommended reading for all of you. Like, it is quite 
bittersweet. It goes up until like her late 20s, I think. And it's just a time of her life where she's like extremely gay and extremely lost. It's like uncomfortably relatable a lot. Audrey graduated from Hunter High School in 1951. At the graduation ceremony, her English teacher celebrated her in a speech to the audience, describing her as one of my future poets. Oh. Having graduated from school, she took the opportunity to move out of her parents' house as soon as possible. As I said, she was feeling stifled by her mother. She argued with her and with her sisters a lot. The suddenness of the move, Audrey says, was catalyzed by an explosive row that Audrey and Helen had on which Linda threatened to call the police. Oh, I have no okay. idea whether Linda was serious or not, mm-hmm. or whether mm-hmm. that was just something she said to her screaming daughters. But the following morning, Audrey left for work and returned home once her family was asleep, packed all the things she could carry and moved out. I see what you mean about how her relationship with the family is actually complicated. Yeah, yeah. it's quite complicated. Yeah. It was hard to sort of encompass in a sequence of events. Yeah, yeah. Because she very, like, she very strongly admires her mother, mm-hmm. and especially by the age when she's talking about all this, she's like, I can see what my mother was trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That didn't make it any easier, especially, like, as a teenager. So, first she moved into the apartment of a friend temporarily, and following this, once she found her own job, which was a night shift as a nurse's aide. Sorry, you said she was coming home from work when she packed up her things. Yeah, actually, that's true. This is what she told me. <laughs> you are very correct. <laughs> I mean, Sometimes she does do that. She has, like, like small inconsistencies. Okay, yeah. I mean, I yeah, that's how people remember their lives. That's yeah, fine. it's possible that she had a temporary job yeah. or something. Or a part-time job. Or her, like, first, like, real, real job. Real job, yeah. yeah. Once she found this, like, night shift as a nurse's aide, she rented her own room with a shared kitchen and bathroom in Brighton Beach, which was a way out of New York City. This gave her a one and a half hour commute to school and an equally long commute to work. Wait, so is she still at school right now? She's at uni now. She graduated from school. She moved on to Hunter College, which was like a associated college to Hunter High School. So Hunter High School fed into Hunter College. It wasn't her first choice of school, but the university she wanted to go to her family couldn't afford. And so she moved on to Hunter College where she started studying English and philosophy. So she had a one and a half hour commute to school, a night shift as a nurse's aide, and she and her co-workers, she says, used amphetamines to stay awake. She's never sort of a habitual user of amphetamines, Mm -hmm. but it's something that she comes back to whenever she reaches these times in her life where she just has too much going on. Whilst she doesn't really think about her sexuality at this point, she makes friends with her co-workers at the hospital who are like other women nurses. And the relationships often have like a flirtatious element to them. Sometime in her final years at school, Audrey had started dating a white man named Jerry Levine. Her parents disapproved of the relationship because they felt that you shouldn't trust white men. Dating a white man was dangerous. He wasn't right for Audrey and he would lead her astray. She liked him as a person and records in her journals growing increasingly fond of him, but their different sexual appetites became a problem. She didn't enjoy having sex with him. She described the sex as dismal, frightening, and pretty demeaning. (sighs) Um... She said he told her she would get used to it. Her friends told her she would get used to it. And she says she wondered why it wasn't possible to just love each other and be warm and close and let the grunting go. (laughs) 
A lot of what she says about Jerry at this time is you kind of get the impression that she felt like she was doing the right thing by dating him mm. rather than that she had a like romantic or sexual attraction to him. Even when you said that she recorded her journal, like growing increasingly yeah. fond. And I don't know if you took those words from Audrey herself, but it kind of sounded like I've started this relationship with a man because I should. And like, okay, now I'm, I'm getting used to this. I'm starting to feel like, you know, I could yeah. do this. Um, but like, obviously that's my interpretation of your words. Increasingly fond is what, Alexis DeVoe said that Audrey recorded in her journal. So we're like a couple of steps removed. So we won't analyze word choice then. She does write about Jerry in her autobiography, although she calls him Peter. She does change a lot of the names just because people who are still alive. She says she was fond of him and that's where can't we just let the grunting go comes from. (laughs) But yeah, in any case, this disagreement, her lack of enthusiasm for sex became a problem and Jerry eventually told her that he thought they should see each other less and she agreed. Not long later though, she found that she was pregnant. Fortunately, although abortion was illegal at the time, she did work at a hospital and a lot of the nurses had connections. She has one friend, Anna, who she was quite close to. She says they used to flirt on their night shift. (laughs) And she spoke to Anna at work and said, Anna, I need an abortion. And Anna said to her, I thought you were gay. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't know what to say to that. I don't think she had, she hadn't really thought about labeling her Mm. sexuality at this point. So did she say gay specifically? She did. That's what Audrey says in her biography. Audrey was like, let's put a pin in that and see about that abortion. (laughs) Yeah. Anna was able to organize an abortion for her. She had a family member who was quite well reputed in terms of illegal abortions and who gave Audrey the special rate of $15 because she was a friend of Anna's. Um, How much money is that? At other times, she has paid rent of $25 a month. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Her $25 a month was quite an expensive rent, I think. Yeah, so Anna was able to put her in touch with an abortionist and the procedure itself went well. Um, That's good. I was concerned. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, she, like, remembers having very painful cramps and bleeding, but, like, that's how an abortion is, even to this day. However, even though she was physically recovered, she sunk into a depression afterwards. She says it never occurred to her at the time that she might be recovering, like, psychologically from the experience because she was so determined not to feel regret. But of the following summer, she remembered very little other than being lonely and sad and taking long walks along Brighton Beach. She spent three days unable to get herself out of bed And when she did manage, she found that she had lost her job at the hospital. In order to pay her rent, she pawned the typewriter um, on which she wrote her poems. She gets it back later, don't worry. Good. And she donated blood for money. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) So I think you can donate blood for money in some places. It's so weird. That's not right. No. So that way she struggled through her rent that month. She continued to attend classes and eventually the like student support service at Hunter College helped her to find a part-time job as a medical receptionist, which was actually a much more like it was a much more suitable job for her. It was only afternoon work. It was mm-hmm. much better paid. Did she keep in touch with any of her friends in hospital? She didn't really mention them again. I think they were largely just work friends. Mm-hmm. Um, she at this time the circle she was closest to was still the branded mm-hmm. her school friends. Are they still holding seances? <laughs> yeah, presumably. <laughs> with this job, she was able to move 
into her own apartment with her own kitchen and bathroom and fireplace. It was apparently filthy when she moved in, which was one of the reasons she was able to get it so cheap. But she and the branded <laughs> came around and had like a cleaning bee and scrubbed it into livability. That um, sounds fun. Among other things, they apparently knocked out the plaster so that they had like a hipster aesthetic brick wall around the fireplace. I do like an exp- been a thing for that long. <laughs> yeah, exposed, apparently. Like- <laughs> yes. Her independence in having her own apartment allowed her to inhabit a kind of like older sister sort of role to her friends That's nice. as the most independent of them, which was an identity which she very much enjoyed and encouraged. And it's something that she would like maintain for the rest of her life, that sense of being like a mother figure to friends. Her rooms in the summer were unbearably hot. When her friends came around, they would sit in their underwear in the living room and drink brandy. <laughs> <laughs> They're like cold lemonade or something. No, like that. Right. no, they were straight, straight for the brandy. <laughs> With I peach really... brandy, apparently. Oh, okay. I want to be friends with these guys. Peach brandy sounds more like more summery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And surrounded by her close friends in their underwear, <laughs> Audrey became very aware that emotional closeness wasn't enough to satisfy her in a relationship with a woman. So she was surrounded by her close friends in the underwear and she's like, oh no, they're attractive. Yeah, basically. Basically, I'm that's not what okay. she writes. She's like, they were here all the time in their underwear and so naked, so good looking. And I loved them all. And (laughs) she, her words, vowed to have an affair with a woman. Okay. she meant a sexual affair. It reminds me of when Toby Anson, who we talked about a long time ago on this podcast and also had relationships with men, then decided to have relationships yeah. with women, wrote like, I will now go to the spook side. And she was like, I, now I'm just having relationships with women. It's decided. That's <laughs> definitely something I think we see a lot in like that sort of like first half of the 20th century, mm. like lesbians, that they make these conscious choices where they're like, men are here, but... I think I'd rather do something else. Yeah, it's like very consciously breaking away from like compulsory heterosexuality. Mm. So she made the decision that she wanted to have an affair with a woman. I assume she succeeds. (laughs) She does succeed, but we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Um, So although she had a close group of school friends around her, she found it much more difficult to make connections at college. And she missed the atmosphere of high school where she'd been one of this proud group of poetry-loving seance-holding idiots. (laughs) So she started failing classes. It never occurred to her, she said, that this might have had anything to do with the fact that she spent all her evenings drinking brandy (laughs) in her apartment with her friends instead of studying. Um, The undergrad experience. (laughs) It also never occurred to her that it might be connected to the depression that she had been experiencing. I just thought, she says, about the German class that she failed, well, some people can learn German and some people can't. And I was one of those people who couldn't learn German. (laughs) And so she dropped out of college and moved to Stamford, Connecticut, where several friends had told her that there was work. The work in Stamford was not as promising as she hoped. She asked at the like unemployment agency for work as a medical receptionist, but says that the like receptionist laughed at her. The idea of a black woman inhabiting such a role oh, okay. was just like beyond her comprehension. So she wound up working at Keystone Electronics, a factory which cut and classified quartz crystals according to their electrical charge. For use in, like, watches and radios. I knew that watches had quartz in them, but I never thought about how that was and how they must, like, get rocks out of the ground and be they like, do. this looks good for a watch. And apparently they have, like, a very low-level radiation, mm, which okay. makes your watch go. The working conditions were bad. The pressure to work fast was such that employees found it worthwhile to save a few seconds when measuring the 
like charge of the crystal, which was done by X-ray to save a few seconds by not pulling down the shield before they did it. Remember how she used to pretend to be a unionist? I think it would be good if she enacted that in real life now. Remember how you content warned for cancer? I did content warn for cancer. This is something that Alexis DeVoe mentioned, actually. She was like, is it possible that this is what led to her? I would say it is definitely possible. Um, and how long does she work? She was only here for about a year, I think. That's Um, long enough. Yeah. Exposed to small amounts of radiation. For what it's worth, she did join the union. Everyone in the factory was a union member. Good. But the union doesn't seem to have been particularly effective about like being able to do this because technically there were safeguards. Mm. Yeah. The pressure to work faster and earn the like earn the bonuses for exceeding the Mm. target was such that people wouldn't use the safeguards. Mm. Although she was a fast worker, Audrey wasn't satisfied with the like meager bonuses that you got for exceeding the target. So in order to appear as though she had measured more crystals, they were counted on the number that you took rather than the number that you like measured just because that was the easiest way to count them. And so she took to hiding crystals in her socks or in her mouth, pretending that she had (laughs) worked with them and then flushing them down the toilet on her breaks. Okay. At the factory, however, she also met Ginger. Ginger was short for Virginia. So Ginger worked at the factory at the machine beside Audrey's. They quickly became friends within the first week when Audrey, overwhelmed by the pace of the factory and the pressure of the factory and just the stress of her life, burst into tears on like her fourth day at work and Ginger bought her a coffee. Aww. So Ginger was in her early 20s. She was a black woman who had recently divorced and was now living back at home with her mother. Audrey described Ginger as gorgeously fat. This is something which has always appealed to Audrey. As a child, she was very self-conscious of her own build because her two sisters were much more slender. And her ability to see fat women as beautiful has always been quite important to her. And soon the friendship progressed to have an element of sexual tension. Ginger perceived Audrey as like a more worldly, more wise city girl. And they spent like a long period of like, will they, won't they? Where Ginger was assuming that Audrey as the wise city girl would like know how lesbians had sex and make the first move. (laughs) And Audrey was there like, well, I'm 18 and she's 23 and she's been married. She's going to do it. (laughs) Um, Before eventually they went to bed together um, <laughs> at which point they were like so like what do we do oh, at which point we, apparently yeah. they figured it out audrey was like i'd been so confused for so long but when i came to it i just knew mm, i'm just thinking about all those historical sources that are like they probably never had sex because like would they even have known how no women couldn't have figured that out like interestingly audrey recalls talking to ginger's mother about their relationship oh okay um, after Ginger's mother scolded them for bed thumping all night when they had work in the morning. <laughs> so they weren't subtle. They were not subtle, apparently. Okay. So, yeah, she didn't She didn't sort of have problems with Audrey, you know, being around, being at family dinner, like yeah. spending oh, yeah. time with the family. But she saw it as like a short-term thing, like a temporary relationship, which honestly I just found quite interesting that – Ginger's mother, Cora, apparently just had no problems with that. She just, you know, woke in the night, heard it, and was like, oh, my daughter sure is having lesbian sex. I mean, we've talked about this a fair few times yeah. on this podcast before, of the kind of idea that, like, female-female relationships are fine when you're younger, and then it's sort of accepted that, okay, but you'll grow out of that and you will settle down with a man. Yeah, like... like it's I'm not an uncommon that, attitude. But I don't think I expected to find it in, like, 
20th century America. Yeah, with Ruth Ellis. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. I mean, Ruth yeah, Ellis was a bit earlier. Specifically that thing, yeah, where, specifically that thing where they had lesbian sex too loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and her dad told her off for it, yeah. Yeah, and I guess it is kind of one thing to be like, all right, with girls having their little bit too close friendships, and another thing to wake up in the night and hear loud sex going on in my house. <laughs> yeah, especially so, yeah. as the mother. Yeah. yeah. In any case, that didn't particularly bother Audrey and Ginger because Audrey had no intention of staying in Stamford forever. And Ginger also had no intention of, like, a long-term partnership. They very much saw it as a kind of friends with benefits arrangement. Okay. okay. Like, they were sexually attracted to each other and very close to each other, but they didn't really perceive it as a, a partnership. Like, yeah. Mm. yeah, you know. In early 1953, while Audrey was still living in Stamford, her father suffered a stroke. So she returned to New York in order to spend time with her family, not long after which her father died. This was one of the first times she had spent time with her mother since leaving home. So she stayed in her family's house with her mother and her sister, Helen. Phyllis was, I think, married at this point, And while she came to the funeral, she went, she went home to her family afterwards. Mm. And mostly she remembers Helen playing the same record on repeat for the entire time while she and her mother grew increasingly... <laughs> Bonded over their frustration. <laughs> After this, she returned to Stamford, but not for very long. The foreman of the factory had become increasingly suspicious of her supposed rate of work. <laughs> um, yeah. And her membership in the union allowed her to leverage resigning with two weeks' pay rather than being fired on the spot. Nice, okay. nice. Um, so she returned to Stamford in order to immediately lose her job. But she returned to work with two weeks' pay. She is doing fraud, so that does seem kind of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She was very, like, unsurprised about it. She was like, I knew it was coming. I didn't want to be in this job forever because it was hell. And yeah. she was also like, she was like, me and Ginger had kind of run our course. Oh, yeah. Like, they were still, you know, they were still fond of each other. But I think what they were both looking for in the relationship had been fulfilled. Oh, yeah. Okay. So she was just kind of done with that phase of her life and that was fine. Yeah. So while, while she did lose her job and she was upset at the time, it wasn't like a disaster to her. It was just kind of her plan had been sped up. Returning to New York, she got involved in activism. Specifically, this was during the McCarthy era in the US. So there was a lot of like heightened anti-communist sentiment, Red Scare. In particular, she got involved in trying to secure a pardon for a couple called the Rosenbergs, who had been charged with spying on like United States secrets for the Soviet Union. Had they? From what I know, it seems that they had, but the like seriousness of the information they had passed on had been wildly overstated. I don't know for sure. All I know is, yeah, she got involved in this movement and got quite emotionally invested in it. The Rosenbergs were a couple. They had two sons who were still children. And the idea that the United States government would happily execute the parents, like create orphans actively, was quite hurtful to her and had quite an impact on her perception of the country in spite of like an ongoing activist situation, the Rosenbergs eventually get executed. Following the failure of their efforts to save the Rosenbergs, Audrey became determined to leave the USA. So where does she want to go? She wants to go to Mexico. So at the time, Mexico was kind of perceived as like a bastion of freedom Uh in North America to the left. This safe harbor for radicals in the US 
who were like under threat from the political landscape at the time. And so Audrey, as soon as she could scrape together money for a plane fare, left the US to Mexico City. I didn't expect that. There's yeah. a moment in her autobiography where she's like, it was right there. If I couldn't fly, I knew I could eventually walk. <laughs> First, she stayed in, I think, a hotel in Mexico City. But quickly after this, she had the contact of an American woman named Frida, who Audrey had some like secondhand connection with through her activism, who lived just outside Mexico City in a community of like radicals who had fled the US. Does Audrey speak Spanish? Not very well. She okay. knows like a little bit of Spanish. She's got okay. like phrase book Spanish at this From stage. pretending to be a Mexican as a teen? Probably. <laughs> she also registered for some classes at the National University of Mexico. Frida found her a place to stay in that community, which she remembers fondly as having like broad windows and being very sunny. And she commuted an hour by bus over the hill into the city for class. And while she was in Mexico, she also met Eudora Garrett. Eudora was a lesbian woman, 27 years older than Audrey. She'd lived in Mexico for some years now. For a while, she had run a political bookshop with That's a partner. Cool. Since then, she and her partner, Karen, had broken up. She worked now as a freelance journalist. By Audrey's account, they had a sexual relationship, but Alexis DeVoe says that this is unsubstantiated by her journals at the time. Oh, okay. It's hard to say whether, you know, she did and didn't write about it or whether she didn't and wished she had. Yeah, and so she just, like, kind of made up afterwards that it had happened. How, like, candid are her journals, do you know? Um, How, like, consistently kept are they? They're consistently kept, but not, like, regularly. Not, like, every day. When important things happen, she'll write extensively. Oh, yeah. Other times she'll write single sentences. Sometimes she won't write at all. But there aren't, like, huge empty patches in her life. Okay. But it is kind of feasible that she could have left out a sexual relationship, do you think? Or I'm more inclined to think that it didn't happen and it sort of fitted the narrative that mm. she wanted for her autobiography. Yeah. Because in her autobiography, she very much kind of frames it as an educational experience for a young yeah. lesbian. It's like Eudora is going to teach her how to be a woman. Oh, yeah. So it's just part of the, the narrative arc in a way. Rather than- yeah. Having said that, she was definitely at least close friends with Eudora. Mm-hmm. And they were aware of each other's, like, sexuality. Okay. One of the things I noted was Audrey commenting that Eudora said she hated the word gay, thinking of it as, like, East Coast US slang that she couldn't connect to. So what was I the word she, she used? she came from California. She preferred to use lesbian. Oh, yeah. Um, and just she didn't like to be called gay. That's interesting because I can't remember who it was, but I remember when I was reading kind of like Stonewall era, so like not that yeah. long after this, I guess, reading about a, um, what we would describe as a lesbian who said like I didn't like being called lesbian because that was like the slur they shouted at us on the street. And yeah. that was like an East Coast experience of the word lesbian where like she didn't want to be called lesbian. She wanted to be called gay because she saw lesbian as like a slur from the outside. Yeah. So where- some East Coast <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, apparently. Apparently. Yeah. And Audrey, when she talks about her like lesbian communities in New York after this, the word they always use is gay. Okay. Um, they call themselves gay girls with a hyphen. 
Gagos. The branded Gagos. <laughs> I don't know if that's the same group or not. Does Audrey speak Spanish? Not very well. She okay. knows like a little bit of Spanish. She's got okay. like phrase book Spanish at this From stage. pretending to be a Mexican as a teen? Probably. <laughs> when she went to uni- she casually mentions getting Eudora to translate a textbook for her. A textbook? The whole book? I don't know if it was just like a chapter or the whole book, but I don't know what she was doing. I did wonder about this. Like, was she... I guess you could maybe take a class about folk songs in a language you didn't speak. I didn't even think about the fact that her classes would have been in Spanish and Mexican. Yeah, but her other class was about, like, Mexican history. and She took an <laughs> ethnology class. So I don't know how she did this. Maybe okay. she just got better at Spanish really fast. Some people do learn languages very fast. Um, Especially when they're thrown in the deep end. That helps. Yeah. So Audrey loved Mexico and her intention was to stay as long as possible, but she was unable to find a job, possibly unsurprisingly, with the language, dif- language barrier. <laughs> and so by July 1954, her savings had run out and she returned to New York. So how long was she in Mexico for? She was in Mexico from late 1953 until July 54. Okay. She had some savings, possibly from those like those <laughs> dodgy bonuses she got in Stanford. She also just found a very supportive community. Mm-hmm. So she stayed as long as she could and she traveled around the area a little bit. And then she returned to New York in 54. In New York, Audrey, feeling like she was in a better place in her life, essentially, returned to her studies at Hunter College. Oh, that's good. And she also got involved in New York's flourishing lesbian bar scene. I'm excited to hear about this. Yes. We haven't talked that much about New York's lesbian bar scene on this podcast, which is surprising, and I'm keen for our foray into it. A lot of what she talks about, she'll mention a lot of specific places, but other than the Bagatelle, which sounds like a kind of seedy bar slash club, (laughs) um, most of them, she says, would like last six months a year and then shut down. Yeah. Often they're like as much community hubs as they are bars. Mm -hmm. Um. There was one, and I'm trying to think of its name, where, like, they were a bar in the evenings, and on Sunday afternoon, their cook, who was Chinese, used to come in and put on, like, a free-with-your-drinks Chinese food buffet. That sounds great. Which just sounds so good. She was like, it was the best place ever. We would all, like, line up until it opened on Sunday afternoon, pretending we were cool and not just here for the, like... (laughs) For the Chinese buffet. (laughs) So was this, like... Because I know that, like, New York's gay scene was quite segregated at this time. Is this, like, a black bar scene? It's mostly white, but not entirely white. She says the lesbian scene was much less segregated than mainstream America. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like she often says that lesbian women were the only like black and white people speaking to each other, but she does largely find herself in like circles of white lesbians as the only black woman. Mm-hmm. Her experience at this time is that all the black women that she knows are quite conservative. Oh, okay. And so she finds it very hard to either find lesbians who understand her from a black perspective or black mm. women who understand her as a lesbian. Yeah. But in any case, she found a circle of lesbian women there who she becomes quite close to, although she never really names them in her autobiography. She just sort of gives you this general sense of having a community. She describes them as always willing to offer a meal or a bed or a listening ear to a lesbian in need and says there was always someone calling you on the telephone to interrupt the fantasies of suicide. That is as good a working definition of friend as most. So like, okay. She's still going through some things, I think. She is actually, incidentally, she's in therapy on and off for a lot of this time, which is something she seems to find very productive. 
That's, That's good. good. Um, like whenever she's cutting costs, her like therapist is the last thing to go. Mm-hmm. Which is just like such a surprising experience of therapy for a black woman in the 1950s. Mm. I wasn't obviously able to find out what went down in those therapy sessions, That's- but Alexis DeVoe is able to like name a number of therapists that Audrey had throughout her mm. life and she develops quite close relationships with them. Okay. Well, that's good. It's something she's very kind of pragmatic about. She's like, I'm aware that I have this sense of loneliness and isolation, which is like built into me and it's Mm -hmm. something I need to work through. That does seem like a very productive mindset to come at that. Yeah. As a black woman in the lesbian community, she did always feel like something of an outsider. It was partly the, the race element. She found that most white lesbians perceived like a black lesbian's experience of oppression and a white lesbian's to be the same. She recalls one of her friends saying to her, oh, we're all Negroes here. Oh. In terms of describing experiences of oppression, which she says she hated every time she heard it. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a phrase. This was a phrase, apparently. Um, To be fair, at this time, like, I mean, this is still a bad sentiment, don't get me wrong, but Negro was not a wrong word at this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, like, the sentiment is bad at any time, and Audrey couldn't stand hearing it. Yeah. I don't think that's a sentiment that's stopped existing in like white queer people's circles. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is another thing that I found reading Audrey's autobiography. A lot of her thoughts about like race and queer communities and things like that just struck me as very modern. She talks a lot, not like right at this moment, but later on about sort of intersectionality Mm -hmm. as a concept. She's very invested in, for example, black women being able to define their identity as black women rather than in opposition to white women, which is something I see a lot like when you read black people speaking about themselves and black culture now, that kind of like defining yourself on your own terms rather than in response to trauma or in response to oppression. A second reason that she felt somewhat alienated by the lesbian community was what she perceived as heteronormative relationship expectations. The lesbian bar scene at this time was very much defined by that, like, butch femme dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Another thing that it's surprising we've never really got into on this podcast. There's so much stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. always will be. Yeah. There always will be. Yeah, but that would be a good thing to do, like, an episode of. She found the, like kind of heteronormative binary of the lesbian community to be quite restricting. Most of the lesbians were either butch or femme, and those who weren't got labelled ACDC or Kai Kai. Is that spelled K-I-K-I? K-Y-K-Y in her book, but oh, I okay, I've, I've just heard it's like super I've heard standardized. it pronounced Kiki, and I was just wondering if, like... Ah, okay. Like, specifically the people I've heard it pronounced Kiki are history is gay when we did that episode about queer slang, and, like, they probably learned it from reading too, so, like, I don't know who's right. No, maybe it's Kiki. Um, Yeah. (laughs) What does that mean? Like, what is that referring to? I'm not 100% clear. She said that, like, outside of the specifically lesbian use of it, it was a word for a sex worker. I don't know more than that about it. I do find it funny that they use the word ACDC because, like, I've heard, like, older people use ACDC to mean, like, bisexual or to mean, like, polyamorous or to mean, like... (laughs) Why polyamorous? I think because, like, you can mul- switching between multiple partners <laughs> or, like, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 It's just, like, a very general word for, like, not just one of something. <laughs> yeah. It's just, like, queer. Yeah. ACDC, the band, thinks of this. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> 
So are these terms within the community that order is in at the moment derogatory? Or are they- yeah, they're, they're quite disparaging. Like, she definitely, over time, forms this circle of lesbian friends who, like, don't fit into that framework. And she says, we were the hippies of the lesbian <laughs> bar scene. <laughs> Regarding the butch femme dichotomy, Audrey says in her autobiography, I have always wanted to be both man and woman to incorporate the strongest and richest parts of my mother and father. Mm-hmm. Like, she didn't want to limit herself to one of those roles. Yeah, once again, there's, like, so much that so much depth to discover about yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. She also rejected the idea of monogamy as a heteronormative relationship expectation. (laughs) She and her community of friends at this time experiment with polyamory, with like either having multiple partners or having like a main romantic partner in an open relationship. (laughs) She talks a lot about having this principle that sleeping with your friends is good for you. (laughs) (laughs) like a way of developing emotional bonds (laughs) it's something which she kind of feels almost ideological about it's quite funny (laughs) Um, that's like quite an intense thing for your friend to just start talking about ideologically i think it's like hypothetical or is this like a come on like what are we doing (laughs) i think in her group of friends it was like sufficiently sexually open Mm. they were sufficiently willing to casually sleep with each other that her having this as like an ideological position this is a good way for humans to relate was not too weird i guess it's more like the first time she was like i think the true authentic human relationship is when you sleep with your friend her friends were like, is that how you want to play it all three? All right. <laughs> but I guess like really it's more like this is her ideological and personal explanation for a thing that her friendship group is doing rather yeah. than this is her coming to her friends who don't sleep with each other and being like, guys, like this is ideologically the right course of action. You have to take it for close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's true. Um, yeah. um, and- so earlier on she was like, oh, why can't we this nearly – close and just like hold each other and stuff and now she's like I know we're friends but we definitely should be having sex I honestly think a lot like a lot of that is that she is interested in sex with women yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) I think it is funny nah (laughs) that was just you Jerry (laughs) (laughs) sex with Jerry why can we just not hold each other and just love each other sex with like anyone else let's go for it Yeah, no, that that's very true. She does link sex and emotional intimacy quite closely, mm-hmm. which now that you mention her experience with Jerry <laughs> is interesting. But I think we also have to consider that she's at like a very different phase in her life yeah. now where she's much more aware of who she is and what she wants, which she obviously just was not at with Jerry. Yeah, like I assume with Jerry, she was like, academically, I think this is what you do, but this just doesn't seem right. Yeah, yeah. During this time, her key relationship was with a young white woman named Marion Mason, who in her autobiography, Audrey referred to as Muriel. Audrey and Marion moved in together. She had met Marion through Ginger, actually, um, before Audrey came to Stamford. The girl that had sat at her machine at the factory had been Marion, and... After she had left, Marion had returned. When Audrey had first come to Stamford, Ginger was like, oh, you're a poet as well, like Marion was. <laughs> and when Marion came back, Ginger phoned Audrey and was like, I have someone who I really think you should meet. And so they organized a date and Marion got on the train to New York and they met at a bar and got on like immediately. I really like to um, picture them bonding over like the annoying quirks of the quartz measuring machine that they both <laughs> used. <laughs> 
<laughs> like when they're like just first met and they're like, we don't really know what to talk about. They would both be there like, oh, you know how the dial always jammed at 3.5? <laughs> I thought they'd talk about the different places that they'd hit in the building. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Marion had also had a very close friend who had died as, as a teenager. And on one of their early dates, the two of them like share their sort of like homo romantic experiences with their friends and they like buy drinks and pour them out for their friends and it's very sweet that's nice the relationship in the end only lasted for a couple of years but for most of them audrey and marion were determined that this was the love of their life and they were going to be together forever so they lived together with a pair of black cats do you know what they were called they were called crazy lady and scary lou That's great. I love it. (laughs) Which is very good. And Audrey often remembers getting up in the night and finding Marion on the sofa when she couldn't sleep, like writing poetry with the cats, like, tucked under her thighs. In 1959, Audrey graduated from Hunter College, this time with an A in German. (laughs) So you can learn German. (laughs) You can learn German after all. Marion apparently had learned German at school and was conversational in German. Oh, okay. So they used to practice in the house together. <laughs> That's oh, cute. Hell. Which maybe helped. Jason and I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and after her graduation, she was accepted into Columbia University's Library Science Graduate Program. Nice. After completing the Library Science degree, Audrey became a young adult and children's librarian at the Mount Vernon Public Library. Nice. For the first time in her life, she was financially stable. She had a job that she enjoyed. She liked working with children. She especially liked the black children who would come into the library. There weren't many books available for black children in the public collection. So Audrey kept a personal collection of novels about black adventurers in her desk and would lend them out to the children as they came in. What a good librarian. When she was 27, after the relationship with Marianne had ended, Audrey met a man named Ed Rollins. He was three years older than she was and had graduated from Columbia University Law School and was working while he studied for the bar exam. Ed was a gay man. He was also very gentle, interested in opera and the arts. He had joined the Navy to get away from a conservative family, and when Audrey met him, he was sharing an apartment with a gay friend who he had met in the services. He apparently wore flowing capes, spoke in florid prose, and was dramatically Oscar Wilde-ish. <laughs> Like, deliberately so, surely. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it it was intentional. The two of them were involved in a very intimate, kind of incestuous friendship group, which is how they met each other, where, according to Alexis DeVoe, the lines between heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, love, and friendship blurred. I mean, we already know this about Audrey. Like, this is no surprise. She does think you should sleep with your friend. This is the kind of group that Audrey wants to find herself in. So... The group was very open about their sexual relations with each other, irrespective of gender, and by the time that Audrey and Ed became close, she had had sexual relationships with many of their mutual acquaintances. So they, like, heard of each other on and off through friends for a while. The two of them became quite close, and at Christmas in 1961, Ed proposed to Audrey. Oh. He was gay. She was a lesbian. They both knew this. So it was Um, like a marriage of convenience? They both wanted children. Oh, okay. At first, Audrey refused the proposal. While she did want children, she was not interested in, like, the constraints of marriage. 
And she said that while she found Ed sexually attractive, she wasn't in love with him. She was also worried that his interest in her had a racial motivation. She was often in these liberal white circles and she had found it wasn't uncommon for progressive white people to want to date a black person or have a black friend as a kind of, you know, scorecard on progressiveness. Mm -hmm. And so she was quite suspicious of his pragmatic marriage proposal. So she asked him to give her time to think about it, intending to ask for advice from her lesbian friends. When she spoke to her friends about it, she encountered immediate opposition. They thought it was a terrible idea. They were like, Audrey, you're clearly a lesbian. (laughs) What do you think you're doing? This is what I would say if my lesbian friend was like, what if I married this man? (laughs) Um, I can see the pragmatism of it, but like... Yeah. Ed, meanwhile, spoke to his family, who felt that he was betraying them by marrying a black woman. I see. Yeah, they're they're pretty trash. Unexpectedly, the opposition brought them closer together. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, they asked their friends and their family. And Alec Brett will do it. (laughs) Yeah. And when they came back, they were like, well, everyone we spoke to thought this was a dumb, stupid idea that we should absolutely not do. You didn't think it was that bad an idea. (laughs) And they bonded over that. And in the end, Audrey agreed to marry Ed, although they clearly stipulated, like, with each other that while they were fond of each other, they weren't in love with each other and they never intended to be. At least it was all on the table. It was all on the table. They intended to have an open relationship. Why do they need to get married? Possibly for the children. I'm okay. not sure. Is that, like, is it a really taboo thing that they have kids and they're not married? Yeah, it may be a taboo thing. It may be a legal thing. Um, like, yeah, it might give you more opportunities. I'm not sure. But they decided to get married anyway. Audrey introduced Ed to her mother. She recalls she and Helen, her sister, like, eavesdropping at the door of the kitchen while her mother, like, chatted to Ed and were very surprised to find that the two of them got on really well. Well, that's good. (laughs) That's good. Because that could have gone very badly, I feel. Like, just from the previous thing where she dated Jerry and her family was like, we don't think you should date a white man. Like, Yeah. No, her mother apparently liked Ed. They found it easy to talk to each other. So, although no one from Ed's family came to the wedding, Audrey's family and friends and all the mutual friends she shared with Ed were present. So, Audrey's family knows she's gay? Audrey's family at this stage never really talk about it. When Audrey and Marion were breaking up, her mother would ring her up and be like, oh, and how's your friend Marion? Are things going okay? Okay. So, so she like knew, but they never talked yeah, about it. Yeah, and this is okay. something Audrey comments on about her mother often. Like the same thing when issues of racism come up. She's not comfortable with discussing certain things, which she's very aware of. Yeah. Apparently at the wedding, one of Audrey's friends looked around the room and said to Audrey, so did you invite every woman that you'd ever slept with? (laughs) And Audrey looked and was like, yeah, looks like it. (laughs) I'm just trying to picture what like the vibe would be of like a lesbian gay wedding. Apparently Audrey's lesbian circle felt quite betrayed by it. So while they came to the wedding, they were quite disapproving. Okay. Um, So that part was awkward. Audrey's family was happy for her. Okay. They liked Ed. They seemed to think it was a good idea. Um, Were they just oblivious to the vibe of the lesbian? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Can you get a bad sex with the bride? Yeah. Yeah, like Audrey, her like conservative Catholic family and all her (laughs) ex-girlfriends. <laughs> on one side of the church and no one and just other. Ed on the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I understand that the wedding was a weird vibe. Was it were okay? <laughs> um, I don't think so, unfortunately. Aww. Um 
she did apparently take him to like a work Christmas party early on in their friendship as like a test run of whether he could act conservative around her family. <laughs> and she was like, it was fine. He didn't wear a cape. He spoke like a normal person. <laughs> he fooled them. <laughs> Just imagine them getting home and having to like walk around the house like swirling his cape to to like get it all out. out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they got married and on March 16th, 1963, they had their first child, Elizabeth Lord Rollins. A year later, Audrey and Ed had their second child, Jonathan. At the same time as this, in August 1963, the March on Washington happened. The March on Washington was a mass march in support of civil rights for black people in America. Josephine Baker spoke at it. Ah, she did. She did. Yes. While Audrey had been politically aware and racially aware for her entire life. Her participation in the march was one of her first acts as part of a civil rights movement. In spite of Audrey and Ed's hopes that they could have this sort of social experiment of a pragmatic marriage between a gay man and a lesbian woman, the marriage itself was turbulent. Audrey could be authoritative and stubborn, as we know, and she was quite explosive in anger. Ed, by contrast, was very gentle and very conflict-averse. Audrey was also disappointed that Ed was never as open emotionally as her previous partners. She'd been accustomed to dating in circles of women who talked about everyone they found attractive and everything that they wanted to do, <laughs> everything that they thought about. And Ed, by contrast, his sexual experiences with men were largely anonymous hookups. She perceived this as an expression of self-loathing for the gayness in himself, that he wanted to have anonymous hookups rather than connect to other gay people. And was determined to fix him. Oh, oh. It's not really her. Yeah. Decision. Not really her place to decide. Ed was quite happy having anonymous hookups. Okay. And didn't really want to bring partners home to his family. So he didn't, like, see any problem with this. He didn't see any problem with that. But Audrey felt that he was emotionally isolating himself from her because he didn't want to talk about that aspect of his life. Mm -hmm. They also found themselves out of sort of convenience and lack of role models, living the gendered husband and wife roles mm -hmm. that they were trying to avoid. Especially when the children were young, Audrey found herself with the majority of the like child raising homework. Mm -hmm. And Ed became quite fixated on his role as the breadwinner as his value to the household. He by this time was running a small like a small law firm. I think it was a one-man law firm. And when he had business difficulties or money worries, he tried to hide them from Audrey because he perceived that as a failure as a husband on his part. I feel like any man and woman that get married for, you know, whatever reason, whether it's being in love or pragmatism, has to work really, really hard if they want to break out or just, like, falling into that. And if you're already not, like, talking as openly as you could, then... Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, though, they were trying their best and... Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, they genuinely cared about each other, like as friends and as partners, just not romantically. While her children were still young in 1968, Audrey's first book, The First Cities, was published by the Poets Press, a small publishing house run by Audrey's school friend and one of the branded, <laughs> Diane de Prima. I was kind of wondering, like, when does she write books? I was like, I know she writes a lot. But she like does get published before this on and off, mm -hmm. just like single poems published oh, yeah, in yeah, periodicals yeah. and things like that. She does get published in whatever the magazine that Langston Hughes put out was. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah that's, that's cool. Surprising. Yeah, Langston Hughes does feature in some of her, like, early life. She was involved in a, like, Harlem writer's circle 
which she went to as like networking, but never really felt she connected to because she was like, they were mostly black men and I was oh, a lesbian yeah. woman. And like, it was a good experience, but I didn't really find community there. How long did she get was queer? I don't know. So anyway, her friend from The Branded and fellow poet Diane Duprima was running a small independent publishing house called The Poet's Press. And she had written to Audrey and said, if you put together a manuscript, I'll publish it. Fun fact, when I was looking up Diane, she was born in 1934, like Audrey. She's still alive. She has published four dozen books that she wrote herself. Four dozen books. And she's also known as a competitive video gamer. Oh. (laughs) Anyway, that was just a wild fact that I learned that I wanted to share with you. That was great. So she was reviewed by Dudley Randall, who ran Broadside Press which was a major black-owned publishing house. She was reviewed in the Negro Digest. Dudley Randall described the first cities as a quiet, introspective book in which she does not wave a black flag, but her blackness is there implicit in the bone. And he admired her fresh and striking phrasing and her tendency to use nature imagery, which he found was unusual in this age of urban poets. Following the publication of her first book, Audrey was invited to take up a six-week writing residency at Tougaloo College, Mississippi, a historically black college. At first, she refused the opportunity. She was in the middle of recuperating from a very bad flu. She had the children to care for, and she was afraid of going south as a black woman. But Ed talked her into accepting. It was her first chance to center her life around writing rather than fitting it in between her two jobs and her study and her children or whatever she was doing. That sounds so luxurious. It was also her first experience of teaching in a formal university setting. She ran a poetry workshop, which was attended by a small group of around 10 undergraduate students all but one of them was black. Although she had instigated the workshop herself, her like appointed tasks were just to be there, do some writing, sit in on some classes, maybe like make some lectures. Um, yep. She instigated this poetry workshop herself, wanting to connect more with the students. But in spite of that, she was terrified. She had never formally studied poetry. She had never taught before. Um, mm-hmm. And here she was in a university with undergraduate students. So she just kind of played it by ear. She was like, I don't know how to do this. So she opened the workshop by inviting the students to discuss why they were interested in writing poetry. And following on from this and their responses, it soon became a space in which they were able to talk freely about race and their experiences of race. So is the one non-black person white? Yeah, she's a white a white girl. I think she's just learning a lot, honestly. Okay, yeah. <laughs> she like saying this <laughs> I don't know. Audrey's very much about like forming connections mm-hmm. between like different groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So She did find she was often at odds with the black students who were very sort of militant about, like, black power. They found Mm -hmm. her marriage to a white man shocking and kind of counter to their, like, pro-black ideology. But she was for herself, she had this, what she called it, her theory of difference, where she talked about the, like, you build strength as a movement by celebrating the difference within it. Mm-hmm. Rather than isolating people into smaller and smaller groups. Um, and like every leftist movement was like, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. She becomes, she becomes quite like, not isolated as a person, but isolated as like a, a voice in the feminist movement later in her life because of her 
determination to like form connections and to criticize white feminism for not including black feminism and that kind of thing. In any case, by the end of the six weeks, Audrey and the students had put together a magazine of poetry called Pound, which Audrey edited, and she felt satisfied that she had been able to provide the students with the black literary role model they would never have had otherwise. Of her time at Tougaloo, Audrey later said, I came to realize that this was my work, that teaching and writing were inextricably combined, and it was there that I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Mm. While she was at Tougaloo, another life-changing event happened for Audrey, and that was Frances Clayton. Okay. (laughs) Frances Clayton was a visiting professor of psychology. She usually worked at Rhode Island's Brown University. She was seven years older than Audrey and had had quite a different life, being a white woman who had grown up on a farm in rural Illinois. By the time she met Audrey, she was 41 and she had turned down three marriage proposals. The exact details of the first meeting between them, I don't have. But when Audrey left Tougaloo at the end of her residency, she knew two things. That my relationship with Ed was not enough. We were going to have to either end it or change it. And that Frances was going to be a permanent person in her life. Wow. Oh, what a, like, six weeks. She's just... What a wild six weeks, yeah. She went to this one writing residency and was just like, okay, I'm going to become an academic and me and Francis are getting married. (laughs) Yeah, Ed's like, no, go. And she comes back and she's like, let me tell you some things, Ed. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So on returning to New York, Audrey found that she was no longer satisfied with her job as a librarian or with her relationship. She pushed Ed to go to marriage counselling with her trying to find a way that they could maintain the marriage, perceiving his unwillingness to change as the major problem between them. She does later acknowledge in her life that she's perhaps too stubborn. Mm-hmm. Maybe not everything is Maybe not everything was Ed's fault. But at this stage, she thinks that it's Ed's emotional distance and his unwillingness to adapt the relationship to her needs that is the problem. Ed at first resisted marriage counselling, feeling like it was an admission of the failure of the marriage. He also didn't have Audrey's good past experiences with counsellors and therapists. But finally, with the help of a marriage counsellor, they agreed to a trial separation where Audrey would take the children. In this period, Ed still kept in close contact with the family, visiting for dinner several times a week. Okay. Mm. In 1970, Audrey published another book of poetry, Cables to Rage, which contained mostly verses that she had drafted in her six weeks at the writing residency. This book was published by Broadside Press, which was, I mentioned before, one of the major black-owned presses, which was run by Dudley Randall, who had positively reviewed her book earlier, her first book. Cables didn't receive very much mainstream attention. Alexis DeVoe says the only published review that she could find was by a white man, Mike Doyle, who said, Lord writes free verse, whatever that is anymore, of no note. (laughs) However, she was becoming increasingly well-known in black arts circles. Hmm. At the same time, on the lookout for academic teaching opportunities, Audrey approached the dean of John Jay College of Criminal Justice about teaching a course about racism and urban race issues. So John Jay College of Criminal Justice had initially been a police academy, um, but it had recently opened up to just like public admissions. What? It was like an academic police academy. I- so like, you're not to like become a police, for police no, to for police No, for police to learn things, things. yeah. Okay. And so like, maybe the public should know these things. Yeah, so it was open to public admissions. Most of the public, like, public admission students were black and Puerto Rican students okay. who were a little older than the usual sort of just out of high school, college age, because this was an opportunity to get into college that they hadn't previously had. The other half of the student cohort was policemen. 
That's interesting. What's the racial demographics of the policeman? Apparently largely black and white. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, like, a mix. Audrey remembers being terrified of the guns, which the policemen wore to class. Oh, why? Like, why? I think they just came in uniform. I don't know. I hate it. Imagine just being a teacher and all of your students have guns. I know. Yeah. In spite of the, like, strange dynamic of the class, Audrey says that very good things happened in the classes. I wish I had recorded some of it. Again, she learned to teach her sensitive subject matter as she went along by asking the students questions and facilitating discussion between them. Mm -hmm. She does particularly remember one young white policeman student having a revelation and saying, oh, we're all just looking for someone to look down on. Okay. So she feels like it was a productive class if a difficult one to teach. Mm -hmm. She said of her class, the learning process is something you can incite, literally incite, like a riot. (laughs) And then hopefully it goes on. (laughs) Like a riot. Like a riot, yeah, (laughs) which I liked. (laughs) She would work at John Jay College for like the next several decades of her life. Oh, okay. So it apparently worked out. I just really wonder so much about the thought process that went into her being like, that's something I could do. Mm. Teach the police about race. Yeah, she was so scared to teach that, like, poetry workshop. (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, I can do She came back and she's like, I can do anything now. In 1971, Audrey and Frances agreed to move in together, along with the two children. Because her separation agreement with Ed stipulated that she not leave the state, he was afraid of if she moved elsewhere, he would lose access to his children. Mm -hmm. Instead, Frances left her post at Rhode Island and her academic career and moved in with Audrey on Staten Island. After a time, Frances set up a private clinic as a psychotherapist. While at first Ed continued to see the children regularly on weekends, he gradually drifted apart from the family until the two main parents for Beth and Jonathan were Audrey and Frances. Audrey was always very aware of the absence of, like, adult male role models that she was providing for Jonathan. At one point, she paid a black male friend to take Jonathan on, like, outings on weekends. Okay. um, Mm -hmm. In order to try and give him some adult men role models, which went well. Jonathan, like, formed a friendship with this man until he realized that he was being paid. Mm. At which point he felt quite betrayed and refused to see him anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't think there was anything wrong with that arrangement except that you have to be upfront about what's happening to all parties involved. Yeah. At that time, I think Jonathan was about 11, 10 or 11. They had apparently kept the breakdown of their marriage quite secret from the children because they sort of felt that they would be able to sort it out without changing anything Mm -hmm. until they agreed on the separation. Both children remember being very surprised and like hurt to find that Ed was going to move out. But in any case, Audrey and Frances bought a house together on Staten Island and moved in and became the main carers for the children. In 1973, Audrey published her third book, From a Land Where Other People Live. It was another collection of poems published by Broadside Press. Working with Broadside, Audrey encountered a lot of the same problems that I mentioned earlier that she'd had with, like, lesbian circles and black circles generally. Black activism, she found, was male-oriented and heteronormative, and she found it difficult to create space for a lesbian woman there. One of the poems in her original manuscript for From a Land Where Other People Live was entitled Love Poem and was an erotic poem to a woman, which I will read you now just so you have an idea of what you're thinking about while I talk to you about Broadside Press's reaction. Okay. 
So the poem goes, Speak, earth, and bless me with what is richest. Make sky flow honey out of my hips, rigid as mountains, spread over a valley carved out by the mouth of rain. And I knew when I entered her, I was high wind in her forest's hollow, fingers whispering sound. Honey flowed from the split cup, impaled on a lance of tongues, on the tips of her breasts, on her navel, and my breath howling into her entrances through lungs of pain. Greedy as herring gulls or a child, I swung out over the earth over and over again. Which is, like, not unusual for Audrey's poetry, excepting that it's obviously erotic. Hmm. So what do you mean by not unusual for her poetry? Like, I mean that the, like, the language is not different. Um, oh, yeah. Just because I haven't read you any of her poetry before, really. So Dudley Randall called her about love poem when he read her manuscript, and according to Audrey asked, Now what is all of this you're on about? Are you supposed to be a man? <laughs> and Audrey was like, Dudley, don't you know I'm gay? <laughs> to which Audrey said, No, I'm loving a woman. <laughs> so basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But at Dudley's request, she allowed the poem to be removed from the manuscript because at this stage, publishing her third book was more important to her than being publicly a lesbian. Without Love Poem in it, the book was nominated for the National Book Award for Poetry. Oh. The three women nominees, there were some male nominees as well, got together and drafted a statement which whichever one of them who won was going to read when they received the award, because they wanted to emphasize that they weren't in competition with each other. Oh, yeah, that's nice. The title ultimately went to co-winners Allen Ginsberg and Adrienne Rich, who was a Jewish lesbian poet and a close friend of Audrey's. This wasn't a queer prize, was it? No. No, this was just the National Book Award for Poetry. It was just like, but gays write good poetry, though. So which one will it be? Um, So... Audrey accompanied Adrienne on stage to receive the award. Alice Walker, the third nominee, couldn't make it. <laughs> um, I just love how, how no, no straights were allowed in the poetry No straights prize. were allowed in that poetry. It was Alice, Adrienne, and Audrey. And um, Alan. And Alan. Were there other men? I don't know about the other men. I only know about the women because they like got together yeah. and were like, whichever one of us wins it, this is a win for all lesbian poets. And so Adrienne read the speech that Audrey and Alice and Adrienne had drafted in the same year that From a Land Where Other People Live was published and nominated for the award, Audrey publicly came out for the first time during a poetry reading at a feminist bookshop. She read the rejected love poem in its entirety to a crowd of women. Adrienne Rich was also present at the reading and said of it, it was incredible, like defiance, it was glorious. I love the fact that she got this poem and her heteronormative publisher was like, we can't publish this. And she was like, cool, I have a different venue for that then. (laughs) So what's the sort of vibe here of her, like, including that poem and then having it projected and whatnot? Like, did she put that in knowing it would be a huge deal or did she think it would just... I don't really know. I get the impression that she just included it and was like, I'll see what happens. Okay. You know, she was aware that Broadside Press was fairly conservative. I mean, that's probably the wrong word. Was conservative in that particular way. Like, Broadside Press was fairly radical in terms of black activism. Maybe she just hoped that Dudley Randall wouldn't get it. (laughs) I mean, Dudley Randall kind of didn't get it. It would slip through the cracks. You put it in the middle and it probably won't read that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So is this explicitly an act of defiance against that? Or was this just kind of like, well, you know, I have got this poem when it's time. Like how like big and sort of angry is this? He also got it published in an, like in another magazine, just as an mm. individual poem. And when the magazine was printed, she tore out the page and like pinned it up in her classroom at work. Oh. Okay. So it's like a big deal to her. So this poem is important to her. Your teacher's got a sexy poem about her on the wall. <laughs> I know, right? I know. <laughs> In her following book, which she published the next year, she used the clout that being nominated for a National Poetry Award had given her to insist to Dudley that love poem be included. Good, good. Um, so she does get it published in the next book. In 1975, Audrey and her family took a trip to the west coast of Africa. When you she, say her family, so like Francis and the kids? Yeah, Audrey and Francis and the two kids who were, I think, 10 and 11. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a trip Audrey had been dreaming of for a long time. Her best guess was that her African roots were from the west coast mm-hmm. because that's where the majority of the slave trade comes from. And before leaving, she attempted to contact older family members in Granada to see if any family stories or culture survived that might like, confirm her her guesses or give her any, like, stronger geographical markers or anything Mm. for where she came from. I have no idea whether she found anything useful from her family at that time. The trip that she planned travelled through Ghana, Togo, and Dahomey, which is now called Benin. So, to some extent, Audrey had romanticised Africa, imagining that she would find a kind of spiritual home there that she didn't have in America. And she felt very unsettled by how American she felt when she got there. Mm -hmm. The fact that Francis's whiteness still held power there was also quite... Mm. I don't think surprising to her, but hurt her. To some extent, she would notice how waiters and hotel staff deferred to Francis over Audrey and often assumed that Audrey was a nanny or an employee. Oh, yeah. Both her children were quite light-skinned because Ed was... Ed actually had a Native American grandmother. Oh. But Ed's other three grandparents were white. Did Ed see himself as Native American? Do you know? Not as far as I know, but I didn't look deeply into Ed's cultural identity. She also found the interest that boys on the street showed to her light-skinned daughter, Beth, very disconcerting and threatening, she said. Um, Fair. Travelling through Africa with two young children was also quite difficult and exhausting, mm-hmm. both for the parents and the children. In spite of all these problems, Audrey found it quite fulfilling. In Ghana, she learnt proverbs that reminded her of things that her mother said to her as a child. That's good. She also recalls eating a sweet cake, which brought back memories of the West Indian bakeries in Harlem that she had grown up around. She found a spiritual connection with the indigenous religion of Dahomey, particularly to the bi-gender deity Mawulisa. Mawulisa is sometimes depicted as a pair of twins, Mawu and Lisa, a woman and a man, and other times depicted as a single androgynous being. I guess that links before with like when we were talking about the butch femme thing and how that didn't resonate with Audrey, how she said, I want to be the woman and the man. Like she was looking for something she had read in like research about spirituality in West Africa before. Mm -hmm. She had read things about like spiritual unity between like the two genders, which she found quite like a powerful concept. It spoke to her idea of like strength in uniting differences. Oh yeah. Yeah. So she was particularly interested in Maui Lisa and one iteration of Maui Lisa, who was a like one breasted mother deity called Sebulisa. I did try and find more information about Sebulisa, 
but searching in English only came up with results about Audrey. Is she in Benin now or Ghana? She's in Benin. What language do they speak in Benin? There are several languages and the religion she's looking at is, you know, one of many religions. Ah, okay, Um, yeah. Sebelisa in particular, she says, was a local goddess. Ah, So possibly just, like, specific to a small enough area that it's hard to find anything Mm -hmm. out that isn't connected to what Audrey said. Okay, that explains that then, yeah. I was just wondering if, because I know there was a lot of French colonization of Africa, for example, like if this, there is scholarship that it's um, in French or something like that. But if it's a very small area, there might just be none. Her trip to Africa does represent like a broadening of her black identity and her sense of like black culture and the black movement mm-hmm. as something which expands beyond the United States and the Caribbean and is a, is a global community in her poetry and in her writing. After that, she increasingly refers to like African mythologies and like African cultural markers, like folk crafts that she became interested in. After her return from West Africa, Audrey became increasingly successful outside black circles. Her newest anthology, Cole, was published by Norton, a white-owned and essentially mainstream press, and Audrey was increasingly invited to visit colleges around the United States to speak. While she travelled, Frances remained home and cared for the children. In the next few years, Audrey would travel to the Soviet Union for the African-Asian Writers' Conference, to Nigeria for the World Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture, to Copenhagen for the World Women's Conference, as well as around America. This allowed Audrey to increasingly make connections with women of colour around the world. We see her use the term women of colour more and more in her writing, and her understanding of blackness and women of colour as identities expands and shifts at this time. At one point she writes, I realise now that when I was saying women of colour, I often was only talking about black experiences. I oh, am. Yeah. And at another time, she's very startled to meet some women from Indonesia who consider themselves black, even though to Audrey that meant African ancestry, oh, yeah. and don't consider themselves women of colour. They were like indigenous Indonesian oh, women. Yeah. They considered themselves Dutch because of Indonesia's history, oh, yeah. and they mm-hmm. considered themselves black. And they didn't like the term women of color. Do you know apply that to them? Why? I think it was just not a term which had any currency where they came from. Oh yeah. They felt it was, you know, it was an American term. Oh yeah. Um, I've heard Australian people say the same thing. They feel like it's an imported American concept. Yeah, and Audrey often expresses having to like change the way that she uses the terms that she uses or thinks Mm -hmm. about them. That one in particular surprised her because blackness and its connection to Africa were so powerful to her. And she was very surprised to discover that there were people who conceptualized a broader blackness than that. She also became involved in activism in support of black women in apartheid South Africa. She didn't travel to South Africa a lot, but she formed an activist organization in the U.S. Mm -hmm. in order to, like, organize in the U.S. to raise funds for them to promote awareness in the US. So you um, said she didn't go there a lot. You mean she did I go think there? she did visit South Africa as a speaker on feminism later in her life, but she didn't visit South Africa in order to do anti-apartheid activism, oh, I don't yeah. think. Most of her anti-apartheid activism was done from a distance in the US. Mm-hmm. She also developed an understanding of a community of third world women during this time, which she extended to include black women in the USA, which she felt that in spite of living in a perceived first world country, shared the same experience of like poverty and colonialism and white supremacy Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. as women in third world countries. 
Um, Is that an idea that's gained a lot of currency? I've seen similar ideas just in terms of, like, talking about the idea of the US as a first world nation being a myth, Mm, Um, like having this third world undercurrent. But I don't know to what extent that view is, like, shared in black American communities now. Mm -hmm. In November 1977, Audrey discovered a lump on her right breast, which her gynecologist confirmed was potentially a tumour and sent her for a biopsy. Although the biopsy revealed that the tumour was benign, Audrey was deeply shaken. Her breasts were very important to her as a like part of her womanhood, mm-hmm. and she felt that her body had in some way betrayed her. Ten months later, a second tumour turned out to be malignant, and not trusting chemo or radiotherapy, Audrey opted for a mastectomy. This was a difficult decision to her. For Audrey, like I said, her breasts and her womanhood were quite tightly linked. In spite of that, she made an intentional decision not to use a prosthesis. She wanted to deliberately reject societal expectations about what women and womanhood should look like. When she writes about this in her journals, she refers again to the one-breasted goddess Sebelisa. At least she had like a a place that she drew strength from. Yeah, it's good that she had like a model to look to that had already been important to her to help her with that. After the mastectomy. She recalled being struck by the lack of voices like hers talking about experiences with cancer. She said, In the hospital, I kept thinking, let's see, there's got to be someone somewhere, a black lesbian feminist with cancer. How did she handle it? (laughs) Then I realized, honey, you're it for now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Did she write much about having cancer? She published a book called The Cancer Journals, which is like part excerpts from her diaries at the time, part Mm. memoir, part essays about her experience, about the ways that, like, her race and her cancer and her sexuality interacted mm-hmm. in her identity. I'm glad that the next black lesbian feminist with cancer would have something to turn to. Yeah. She starts adding cancer survivor to her, like, pithy little description of herself <laughs> as, like, a black feminist lesbian mother poet warrior. Incidentally, the same year she had the mastectomy... She became a Pisces. How do you become a Pisces? So, over time, because of just, like, the way orbits line up oh. things, there are, like, changes over time. Is this, like, how A couple of minutes at a time. Secretly a 13th star yeah. sign that we just don't talk about. So, so she'd been born, like, on the cusp. half an hour before the end of Aquarius. And over time, no, but you because the changeover changed, she moved into Pisces. But you she writes st- about it in her journal and is like, this is the year I become a fish. No, because you were still born at the same time. Your birth time hasn't changed. Like, if you were born in Aquarius, you're still in Aquarius. <laughs> like, I'm not an astrologist. <laughs> Nor am I. But I understand that astrology is important to queer culture. <laughs> we have- I feel that Audrey thought it was important enough to note in her diary that she had become a fish. As I alluded to earlier... Audrey's voice at this time was often an isolated one in both feminist and black activism. She felt that feminist academia especially looked too much to establish patriarchal power structures for validity and support. This was the time when she wrote one of her most famous essays, The Master's Tools Can Never Dismantle the Master's House, which was essentially an essay talking about how by giving too much credence to the established power structures of heteronormative patriarchy and white supremacy, these things could never be dismantled. If you keep valuing your movement by those metrics, then you'll never have a, like, a movement powerful enough to escape them. She was equally aware that the black civil rights movement was often blind to the gendered elements of racism. Around this time, there was a spate of murders of black women in New York where she lived, and she found that the black civil rights movement largely interpreted these as 
racially motivated acts where Audrey and many of the black women she knew suspected that they were internal community violence against women from men. Okay. Did they find out ever? Do we know? I don't know what they ended up being. They may have never found the culprit. But it was an internal tension within the movement at this time Mm -hmm. that Audrey in particular, but other black women, felt that the black civil rights movement was denying the reality of the gender problems within the movement. Mm -hmm. As she got older, Audrey's relationship with other feminists and other black lesbians became increasingly complicated in other ways. In her own words, she only knew how to relate to women as a mother or as a lover. And as the years passed, she found that the young feminists she knew and wanted to see as her protégés wanted her as a peer rather than a mentor, or would accept being her protégé for some time, but eventually wanted to be equal with her. Oh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And she was often reluctant to make that shift or didn't really know how to. And often the women that she aspired to romantic or sexual relationships with were more interested in respecting her as an academic. So are her and Frances in an open relationship? Her her and Frances are not in an open relationship. Oh. Alexis DeVoe did not ever mention it coming to a head, Mm. but Audrey never let go of her understanding of, like, open Mm. sexuality and, like, sex with friends. But she didn't feel she could explain that to Frances. And so she never tried. That's not great. Especially if you're still, like, acting on that. Yeah, it's not great. And she does have some affairs while she's in a relationship with Francis. Mm -hmm. And I think towards the end of their relationship, Francis becomes aware of it. But I never read about any specific instance where Francis was like, oh, I see you've been cheating on me or they like discussed Mm -hmm. it for the first time. So I'm not sure how it came out. Or if it was just kind of a thing that Francis kind of gradually just... Just gradually became aware of or knew but turned a blind eye to because she didn't want to discuss. Yeah, Um, yeah. I'm not really sure. But yeah, they definitely had different views on this. Francis wanted a monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. And that was something Audrey wasn't willing to do. And she does talk sometimes about her lack of role models in polyamory. When she's living with Marion, she says, we thought we were the first people ever to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm aware that we were probably not, <laughs> but there were just no writings about it. Nobody else we knew had tried it. And I think the same thing kind of came up with her and Francis. She had no idea how to broach this with someone mm-hmm. who thought monogamy was just a given. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to diminish her fault. Yeah, yeah. Like, that was absolutely a wrong thing to do. But by the summer of 1981, Audrey's partnership with Francis was slowly waning. The two children had finished high school. Mm-hmm. This was the summer after Jonathan, the younger child, graduated. She described herself and Francis as two crotchety women trying not to take it out on each other in a place we both love and felt like their connection had become increasingly superficial. She complained in her journal that she was tired of conversations about wildflowers, birds, and shopping chores. Wildflowers and birds, to be clear, were like specific interests of Francis as she was interested in bird watching and nature and they often had taken like long walks together. Oh, okay, yeah. And that kind of thing. So it wasn't just like they were making small talk. <laughs> it was like she was bored of the things that Francis cared about. Attempting to express the feeling through poetry, she wrote, there is no crucial lens bearing your face. No broad base lurks beneath having to vibrate my name like a mantra of direction. We are no longer central to each other. Hmm. No problem. Francis didn't like finding this out by reading poems. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like it doesn't sound like Audrey had really worked out communication. So. No. And it was in her breakup with Francis that she comes to realize that 
sometimes she is at fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she comes to realize she's like, perhaps I was too fixated on being right. And sometimes I am not right. I'm afraid so, Audrey. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Can't be right all the time. The distance between them came to a head in an argument that they had about what to do with the children's bedrooms now that Jonathan was moving away to college. Well, Frances wanted to use the two empty bedrooms for something else now, and Audrey was determined that her children were a part of her life and should always have a home to come to and didn't want to move their bedrooms. Both valid stances. She perceived Frances's decision as a way of, like, separating herself from the children and, like, leaving behind her responsibilities as a mother. Okay. Um, That's intense. They eventually resolved the debate. Audrey conceded that it was not abandoning your children to use their bedrooms when they were outside, (laughs) when they were away from home. But Jonathan, who overheard part of the argument, describes it as a separation argument and felt that... It was for him the hint that this wasn't going to last. While Francis continued to support Audrey and the two continued a close friendship for some years, this was the beginning of a slow separation for them, which was finally completed in 1988 when they sold the house on Staten Island and Audrey moved to the US Virgin Islands, so in the Caribbean, and Francis moved to California. But before that happened, the same year as that summer where Audrey wrote of being bored and frustrated with Francis, was the year that Audrey came to know Gloria Joseph. Gloria, who had been born in the US Virgin Islands. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, when you're like, she moved to the US Virgin Islands, I was internally like, huh? There's there's a reason she went there. Had got her PhD in the US and spent much of her life teaching in the States. She was a sociologist by training and another, like, black Caribbean American feminist. Audrey and Gloria crossed paths a number of times because they spoke at the same conventions and went to the same conferences. And in 1981, Gloria contacted Audrey to invite her to speak at a women writers symposium she was organizing in the Virgin Islands. Following this, the two became close through work together on anti-apartheid activism, and as Gloria said, a spark ignited. (laughs) On October 25th, 1983, the United States invaded Audrey's family homeland of Granada. Okay. Um, I didn't even know that occurred. That did occur. So was Granada like its own country before then? Mm -hmm. And it does become its own country again after that. Okay. In 1974, Granada became independent from Britain. Yeah. In 1979, like a local communist party seized power, which had close ties with Cuba. I see. In 1983, there were some internal tensions in the communist party between the like leader and his deputy prime minister. Mm -hmm. So they have an arrangement similar to Australia at this time. They had a prime minister and a governor general who was the representative from Britain. And the governor general contacted the United States for help. The United States took help as let's invade. Yeah. And came and invaded basically. (sighs) Um, Margaret Thatcher was angry at Ronald Reagan over it. (sighs) She was. She apparently was like, "What is this? This will be perceived as a powerful Western nation meddling in the affairs of a small third world country." I was like, "Margaret, what happened to the Falkland Islands?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Reagan had to apologize to her for not giving her more warning. Um, apologize to her and not to Granada. No, no apologies nah. to, to Granada. Straight to Maggie. Anyway. Although Audrey had been to Granada on a brief visit before that, she had never made it to the island of Cariacou where her mother was born. And the invasion before she had managed to make that connection was very upsetting to her. Mm -hmm. She wrote, 
in her journal, Granada, I could cover the page with your tears, with my tears and your cries of outrage. 6,000 soldiers, 700 captured Cubans, 1,500 militiamen and women. Those were the horses on the Grenadan side. The snipers in the hills are protecting their nutmeg trees, their banana plants, their own plots of land. My heart feels like it is bursting. Two months after the invasion, Audrey and Gloria visited Granada. Audrey had relatives there, which while she didn't see often, had always like kept contact with her family. They sent oh, yeah. over gifts sometimes at Christmas when she was a child and that kind of thing. And she contacted them before she went to Africa. And Gloria had friends in Granada. And so both were concerned about the impact of the invasion, both just in general as a nation and on the people they cared about. At first, they stayed at a hotel in the capital where food was geared to Euro-American tastes. Audrey asked in her journal, what does it mean to come to your home too late, invaded, raped, and you still eating the food of its marauder? But the pair after this traveled to Cariacou, where Audrey recalls that they were often recognized by the family resemblance in Audrey's face. Although the country was obviously battered by the invasion, Audrey was struck by this, like the sense of resilience and their like attempts to rebuild. And she also said afterward, I never felt like I belonged someplace. People recognize me. It feels like home for real. And in her essay, Granada Revisited, which she published not long after returning mm-hmm. to the States, she declared herself for the first time in writing a Grenadian American. Hmm. That's good. Cause like, she's obviously like throughout her life, like she went to Mexico and kind of was looking for a home there and she went to Africa looking for a spiritual connection. Like she's very actively been searching for like yeah. this place where she feels like she belongs. Yeah. Especially in her childhood, she has this sense from her mother's stories that they have this home that she's never been to. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy for her that when she went there, it felt like home. Yeah. Yeah. In February, 1984, While suffering from digestive problems, a scan found a tumour on Audrey's liver, which had most likely metastasized from the breast cancer she'd had some years earlier. At this stage, it was incurable. The cancer could be delayed, but would ultimately be terminal. Terrified, but determined to keep on living her life for as long as she could, Audrey took up an invitation that German sociologist Dagmar Schulz had extended to her years before. Dagmar had first met Audrey at the UN World Women's Conference in Copenhagen, And the following year, in 1981, while lecturing as a visiting professor in the States, she saw a speech that Audrey made at the National Women's Studies Association convention about the anger of black women. She was deeply moved by the speech and invited Audrey to come to Berlin to teach a summer semester, like at her home university. Schultz hoped that a course taught by Audrey would attract not only white German students, but also members of the Afro-German community. Is there like a big African community in Germany? Yes. Yes, quite big. I didn't know that. Um, And a lot of the like Afro-German community now credit Audrey with like encouraging the community's sense of cohesion Hmm. as like Afro-German as an identity. Okay, that's cool. In April 1984, Audrey arrived in Germany. And according to Dagmar, her first question upon arrival in Berlin was, okay, where are the black Germans? (laughs) (laughs) At least we know she speaks German. She does. She does. She's got an A in German. Yeah. So she soon made connections within the Afro-German community, especially with women. And she made a point of encouraging them to write their own stories and write for themselves. A number of African-German writers credit Audrey's encouragement with the publication of their first books. She also helped to produce a book called Showing Our Colors, Afro-German Women Speak Out, 
which was an anthology of black German women's experiences and voices. So you've said that title in English, but I assume it's a German book? It was published in both languages. Okay. Over the next eight years, Audrey would make regular visits to Germany to teach her summer course in Berlin. And she continued to encourage and support black German writers throughout this time. So, as I mentioned, in 1988, Audrey and Frances sold the Staten Island house where they had lived. And Audrey and Gloria Joseph moved to Gloria's home. Well, Gloria's previous home. She'd lived in the States for a while in the Virgin Islands. Audrey became close with Gloria's family during this time, which was spread between the United States and the US Virgin Islands. One memorable family moment, she met Gloria's siblings and Gloria's oldest sister, Etty, stopped to have a long conversation with Audrey. After the conversation, Etty turned to her family and said, oh, I must be a lesbian too. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just thought was very nice. (laughs) So was Eddie just like not fully aware of the concept of lesbianism, and then so. she was like, "Oh, yeah, that that's me." Yeah, I think she'd been single all her life, and also to Audrey, being a lesbian is as much about forming communities of women as it is about like one-on-one oh, yeah. attraction to women. Mm-hmm. So it's also possible that Eddie, on speaking to Audrey, was like lesbianism can also be prioritizing relationships with women in your life, regardless oh, of yeah. whether they're romantic and sexual, and was like, oh, I feel I identify with that. Oh, yeah. While Audrey and Gloria continued to travel when Audrey was well enough, for the rest of Audrey's life, they made their home in the U.S. Virgin Islands. On November 17th, 1992, this is where Audrey passed away. The final words that she wrote were a note to Gloria, which simply read, Gloria, I love you. Mm-hmm. And that's all the content that I have for you. There are so many things I didn't even mention here. She started an entire publishing house that I did oh, not oh, mention. Wow. Discovered some half-sisters in, like, the last five years of her life. Oh. Yeah, she did so many things that, like, I just couldn't fit in. She sounds great. Like, I feel like we got such a sense of her personality, which we often, like, obviously she's more recent than a lot of people we mm. talk about. I feel like we often kind of struggle to get, like, a real sense of what a person is thinking and feeling and everything. And, like, I feel yeah. like we have such a strong sense of who Audrey is. Yeah. I feel like that is something very, like, very important to Audrey personally. Mm. Like, the, like, expression of, like, feelings and emotional reactions to things. Like, I very briefly mentioned that speech that she made about, like, anger as a feminist tool. And you can also see it in her relationship with Ed. Like, to Audrey, the right thing to do is to express everything. Yeah, yeah. Which is very convenient for that graphical purpose. <laughs> it's so easy, isn't it? Yeah. It is, and she, yeah. like, actively in the last years of her life, she makes an effort to, like, organize interviews with a lot of people close mm-hmm. to her and, like, get her biographical information in order. Yeah. So and she- talk to Gloria about, like, what she would want out of a biography of her. That's good. I'm glad um, she did that. Thanks, Audrey. Everyone else take notes. <laughs> yeah. Like, she was she was very conscious of, like, the legacy that she was leaving as, you know, the first, like, black feminist lesbian that she had ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she was very aware of going through her life with no role models for what she was. And she didn't want that for everyone else. Good on her. Thank you for listening. This has been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If you liked what you heard here, you can find the rest of our episodes wherever you found this one. If you found us on Apple Podcasts especially, you can leave us a review. This really helps us to reach new listeners. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. Or you can contact us directly by email at queerasfact at gmail.com. 
If you want to offer us financial support, you can buy our merch through Redbubble or you can support us through Patreon. Our patrons voted on this episode. Joining our patron at certain levels gives you the opportunity to vote on upcoming episodes. I will be putting up a list of sources for this episode on our website, queerasfact.com. I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boonwara. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which we record this podcast. We will be back on August the 1st when Eli, Alice and Jason will bring you the second part of their Achilles and Patroclus extravaganza. Thank you for listening and we'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>